Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated. And we are going to be back in Galatians chapter 5, specifically verse 22. Again, today, we, uh, we, have, been, uh, we have been working through this passage now for the last number of weeks because this is a passage about what the Apostle Paul calls the fruits of the Spirit. And so these are the things that when we become Christians, when we repent and are baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit, that these are the things that the Holy Spirit begins to, to grow within us, fruit that starts to show in our lives. And we have established over the last number of weeks that these fruit of the Spirit are really attributes of God. Uh, they're, they're a restoration within us of the image of God in which we were created. Uh, and so we are this week talking about faithfulness. So we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're talking this week faithfulness. Okay, so faithfulness. Uh, faithfulness comes from the Greek word pistis, which is a word that means belief or faith or trusting. And so when, when faithfulness is giving, given here as a part of this list, it has, it has two directions for us as for those of us who are Christians. On one, it is a faithfulness to God, that, that we are called to be faithful to him. But then also mirroring his faithfulness to us, that we are, uh, we have the attribute of faithfulness within us as well, in which others see us as faithful, uh, in that we keep our vows, we keep our promises, we, we have integrity in the way that we do things as well. So there's a, there's a, uh, there is a faithfulness to God and being a faithful person. Uh, as well. These are the things that, that come out in this idea of faithfulness. And it's a great day for us to be talking about these things as it is a day when we will share in the sacrament of baptism today. Because baptism is an outward and visible sign of responding to God's faithfulness to us uh, and then also making vows that we will remain faithful to him. And so the people who are being baptized will make those vows, and, uh, and those of us who are Christians in the room will also renew our vows that we made at our baptisms or were made over us uh, as well. And so this is a great day to be talking about God's faithfulness and our faithful response as well. So if the fruits of the Spirit, including faithfulness, are, are the image of God being restored in us, if they are attributes of God... Well, this is why we understand that God is the greatest example of faithfulness that there, that there is to be had. God is, is purely faithful, completely faithful. He, uh, he, the scripture says specifically, he cannot tell a lie. Um, but then also uh, that we see within the entirety of the scripture, God constantly making covenants or contracts or promises and keeping them. Uh, it's, it's, it's the undergirding of the entire 
story of Scripture. If ever once God was unfaithful, it would make us doubt his worthiness as God himself. But never once is God unfaithful to us. You see in the scripture the stories of Abraham and Moses and Isaac and or back before that Noah uh, as well. There's a constant there's a constant making of promises and keeping them on God's part. Most of the Old Testament is about the people of Israel and their relationship with God and God's continued faithfulness to them over and over. And then we also see that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our faithfulness. That, that over and over again, God remains faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. In fact, there's a whole book in the Old Testament called Hosea. Uh, and Hosea, the prophet, is called to marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute. Um, and he's called to marry her and remain faithful to her and redeem her and pay to bring her back, even when she continues to be unfaithful to him, as an image of showing God is the one who is faithful, even when we, as his bride, continuously are unfaithful to him. It's, Paul says it to Timothy very clearly. If we are faithless, God will remain faithful. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. So God is the quintessential example of faithfulness. And so that's why at the heart of the Christian faith is repentance and belief and baptism. Because the way that our lives as Christians start is to say we have been unfaithful to our faithful God. And repentance is to say we, we are turning back to him. We are, we are renewing that vow. We are, we, are, uh, we are apologizing for our sins. We are regretful of our sins. We are, um, we are rejecting those sins that we have been pursuing. And we are coming back to be faithful to God. That's repentance and belief that we actually trust God. Not just that he exists, but that we lean on him. That we believe that his ways are right. Not just that he is good, but that his ways are good. And that our faithfulness then, in response to his faithfulness to us, is vows to remain, uh, to remain dedicated to him and to then be a part of be doing his faithful work in the world as well. So, if, if faithfulness is first about being faithful to God, how are we faithful to God? So we believe him, we trust him. Part of this is, is our doctrine, okay? The things that we believe, the, our theology, how we, how we see the world. And when we say theology, we don't just mean our views of God, but how we view everything in light of who God is, okay? And so where does that come from? Where do we, where do we get those firm beliefs that we are going to rest on? This is where this book comes in as Christians, this is the Bible, which we understand to be God's revealed word. In other words, we can know God. Maybe you've talked to people who have said, yeah, I maybe believe that God exists, but can anyone ever really know God? Well, you can if that God wants to be known, if he reveals himself to us, and he has. 
primarily in, his, in, in himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, where we can know who God is, but then in his revealed word of God that is living and active, is, what, is how the scripture described itself, it's, describes itself. Breathed out by God, inspired by him, written by human hands, but divinely written through their agency. This is the word of God and therefore is authoritative. It is therefore how we understand everything is, is through God's revealed word. If we don't have this, we don't have anything. There's, this, there's a famous story about Billy Graham, the great evangelist, who was, if you've never, if you've never really looked at Billy Graham's ministry, it's, it's astounding what Billy Graham uh, has done. There's a whole museum uh, up uh, in Chicago of, uh, about him that is really fascinating to go in and be a part of. He was, he was more than just an evangelist. He was a world leader. Uh, I mean, his impact, he was on Time Magazine and People Magazine and met with, with leaders from all over the world, affected political policy. I mean, he, he was a profoundly influential person. And, and in his biography, he, he tells a story um, about uh, that he had a friend named Charles Templeton, and Charles, who he called Chuck, uh, and they were friends. They were roommates uh, and evangelists together. And so they were doing the work of mission together as, as young men. And, and Chuck went off to seminary at Princeton, where he received an education that taught him that this book is actually not reliable. Went through biblical criticism and um, historical criticism and all of the things that, that, uh, that try to pick apart this book. And he ended up uh, rejecting the infallibility and the authority of the scripture and eventually then rejecting his faith entirely. And he and Billy were close friends and they were talking through these things and he was trying to get Billy to see his way of thinking and about how, about how that you couldn't put your faith and trust in this book. And Billy was really struggling with this. And he tells the story of, of praying and reading and, uh, and walking and struggling and trying to figure out where he was, where he stood, how does he, how does he answer some of these questions? What does he do with this book? And he tells a story of one particular time when he was taking a walk through, through the woods and he laid his Bible on a tree stump and he prayed this prayer. He said, oh God, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science and I can't understand some of the philosophical and psychological questions that my friend Chuck and others are raising. And then he said that he fell to his knees and the Holy Spirit moved in him and he said this, Father, I am going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts and I will believe this to be your inspired word. There was a dedication that he said was the turning point in his ministry um, and the power of his ministry and the fruitfulness of his ministry where he said, I'm going to give up trying to answer all the questions and figure out everything and master all of this and instead be mastered by this. And to be able to say, this is the word of God and I will trust that even if my own ability to understand lacks the beauty and depth of knowledge that is in this book. The, you don't have to turn your brain off to be a Christian. 
You don't have to stop thinking. We value in an educated uh, church. We, we can, some of the best minds that the world has ever known have been Christians. You don't have to turn your brain off. But when we understand our use of reason, which is a big part of our Anglican heritage as well, when we understand the use of reason, reason is not saying, I have to be able to figure it all out. I have to understand it all. I have to prove it and satisfy myself and my own reason for it to be true. Rather, reason says, God is true and good and smarter than I will ever be and knows more than I will ever be. And so I will use my reason then to try to grasp the things that God have told me is true. Do you see the difference? The difference between saying, I have to understand, it all, it all is accountable to me and my intellect and my ability to grasp it all, or is it I'm accountable to God and to say what I don't understand is not, is not that he then is, uh, is unbelievable, but rather that I don't get it. It's my limitations, not his. And you can be profoundly smart and never outsmart God. Keep thinking Keep asking your questions. Keep, keep, uh, keep working through this. God can handle your questions. You don't have to turn your brain off, but use your brain properly. Your, your two-year-old child doesn't understand the things you do as their parent. And you eventually, even if you don't want to sound like your parent, you eventually will when you say to them, you don't have to understand what I'm telling you to do. You just have to do it. Right? right? Like, and then you go, oh, man, I hated it when my parents said that. But that was the, that was the truth of it, right? Because you have to go, look, I'm tired of explaining myself to a two-year-old. You can't, you cannot mentally grasp it. Just know I'm your dad. This is what I said. You don't have to understand it. Just do it. Right? And there's an aspect of this in our faith in God, too, that of saying, I don't understand it all. But when we trust that he is good and that he is right and that his ways are best, then I'm going to live into it. And then I'm going to have understanding follow behind that. So as Christians then, to be faithful to God, we have to know, we have to know good teaching. We have, to, we have to be in the scripture ourselves. We have to learn it. We have to read it. We have to be at connections classes. We have to, whatever it is where you are learning and growing so that you can know good teaching and actively resist bad teaching. See, you've got to understand this too, right? There are, there are hollow and deceptive theologies and ways of thinking that are vying for your heart. There, there, there's an enemy at work in all of this as well that the church has traditionally called Satan, sin, and death, or the world, the flesh, and the devil, that is actually at work in you to deceive you. And uh, and so we have to be aware that it's not just that we're an open book and we have to kind of figure out our way forward. You are actively trying to be deceived. And so we, faithfulness is resisting. It's resisting. It's going even though that is an attractive way to go. Even though that kind of can make sense. It is not in line with what is in here and therefore not what is right. There's a resistance to false philosophies and false truths that we are being called to as Christians. And so we have to hold to the authority of Scripture. We have to hold to the truthfulness of the creeds. That's why we say them every Sunday. And why do we say the Nicene Creed every single Sunday? Because we need to know this truth about what we believe as Christians. 
We need to hold to the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. That, that's not something that we as Christians can say, well, in order to be able to interact with folks, like we can, all, all religions share something. The only name under heaven by which we can be saved is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who was God, who is God, who came to be one of us, to die on the cross for our sins, and that faith in him now brings about grace and forgiveness and salvation. He's the only one. All religions don't lead to God. We have to hold to these kind of things and defend these kind of things as Christians. Not because we're angry and closed-minded and uneducated, but precisely because we are, we are very open-minded to all that God has to say to us and that, we are, uh, that we're not angry. We're actually deeply in love. We're deeply in love with God and we're deeply in love with the world that he has called us to reach and this is what brings about righteousness and goodness to them. So this isn't about anger and hate. This is about true, actual love. It's holding to the truth of God. We have to hold to the importance of the church as the community of believers, essential to the Christian life. We have to hold to biblical views of sexuality and gender, that sex is a gift from the Lord to be engaged in and celebrated and enjoyed in the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's, that is the truth of the scripture. Our culture doesn't like it when we say it. We, there's a lot of political rhetoric that starts to immediately follow after that of hate and these, no, 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 no. This isn't about hate. This isn't about, this isn't about closed-mindedness. This isn't about bigotry. This is about saying God has made things in a particular way, and that way is what is best and good and right, and others are deceived, and that we need to bring about healing and hope and health and joy. That's what this is about, and we have to hold to these things as the church we have to hold to generosity and love and charity in a world that is angry and rude. We have to hold to hope in the face of a world that is obsessed with despair. We need to hold to the image of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in a world that has ceased to value these things. Faithfulness is standing firm. Jude writes and he says, I write to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're the saints. That's, that's who he's talking to. We're the saints, the holy ones, the ones who have been made holy uh, in, uh, through Jesus Christ. And, and the truth has been given to us, has been delivered to the saints. Or as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. The truth of the scripture, the, 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 the reality of what is true healing and hope has been entrusted, deposited with the church, us. And that we must, we must hold it and keep faithful to it and remain, uh, remain with the scripture as our standard for belief and truth and morality and reality even when the world in which we live in is pushing back and calling us all kinds of names for it as well. We must be faithful. Faithful. And so this book, we need to learn and know it and live it and, uh, and celebrate it because we believe that the word of God is what truly brings flourishing. So friends, stay faithful. Don't give up. Don't give in. 
persevere, even if there are attractive but deceitful other philosophies that are pulling on your heart. Come back to the truth of the Word of God. So, being a faithful Christian, though, is not just believing the right things. It's also that we are to be faithful to the mission that God has given us. So, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that, uh, that we long for and hope to see, to hear one day when we appear before our Savior, when we are, shall see our Lord face to face, as we say in our liturgy, that we hope to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant, right? So faithful servant, faithful servant does things. They don't just understand that they are a servant, they serve, right? And so they don't just believe the right things, they actually put those things into action. And so what does a good and faithful servant do? Whatever the master asks. That's what a good and faithful servant does. And so we're faithful in our belief about who God is, and we're faithful as he actively calls us to participate in his redemptive work in the world. For some, that's going to be big things like Billy Graham, Some, it's smaller things, but it doesn't matter if it's big or small in the eyes of the world. Are we simply faithful? Now, you might be called to be the next Billy Graham. You might be called to be the next Ben and Cherie Weber, who we've sent out from this church to go be missionaries in Rwanda. You might be called to that. That might be, the Lord might be calling you to a radical shift. He might be calling you into the clergy. Maybe he's calling you to plant a church. I pray that these are the kind of things that you will listen to when the Lord is speaking in your heart and through the community of the church. But he might not be. He might just be simply calling you to be faithful in the small things that he asks you to do. To be faithful in your marriage. To be faithful as parents. To be faithful in business. You know, a good plumber is a gift from the Lord. Right? Like, I don't know how all the tubes in my house work, and so I need someone, when something is not going well, I need someone who knows the tubes to come in and say, here's what you're going to need. And I need to be able to trust them to not tell me all kinds of stuff that I actually don't need, but they're going to charge for me anyway. Right? Like, I need to rely on somebody in this. I want to find a good Christian plumber. Because I hope that a Christian will be faithful. Now, you might be going, they're not all the time. No, I get that. Like, that's what the cross is about too, right? But, but I'm going to lean on someone who has these kind of values of faithfulness that I pray we have as Christians, right? Where, where are you called to be faithful? Here's a place that I think one of our, one of our most overlooked but, but best opportunities for mission in the world, where we are to tell people about our faithful God and his faithfulness and call people to a place of repentance and belief, one of the, one of the primary opportunities that we have is to be really, really good friends. I just think our culture has lost a concept of friendship that is a devotion to other people that, on which you can truly count on them and they on you. That they're the kind of people that if you need them at two in the morning, that you are not going to hesitate a second but to call them. And you would want them to call you and that you would be there for them as well. We're so cynical and we're so busy that we don't have time for cultivating deep friendships. 
And we're scared of everyone. We, do, we look at everyone kind of out of the corner of our eye like this. How do you be deeply good friends to people inside the church and out? To your unbelieving neighbor, be a really good friend to them so they go, I don't get you. <laughs> Why are you like this? And you go, I'm, I'm like this because let me tell you about my faithful God. Right? How, how can we be faithful? What is God calling you to do? We're all called to be faithful to the Lord and in these things of being friends and being family and, uh, and in business and those sort of things. And then he's given us all specific gifts. Not only are there fruits of the Spirit, there are also gifts of the Spirit, different sermon series for a different day. But, but the, the Lord has given you specific gifts through his Holy Spirit. Maybe it's music and you play up here. Maybe it's accounting and you serve in the finance team. Maybe it's compassion and you help with Anglicans for Life as they serve women's shelters and helps mothers and talk about adoption and fostering. Maybe you house and or mentor one of our fellows or pour into our teenagers or love our college students. Where's your gifts? Maybe you help with construction and help build a Habitat for Humanity house or you serve with hospice or you tutor in the schools. Where has the Lord given you gifts? And what the scripture says is that when the Lord gives us gifts, they're given for the common good. In other words, you've been given gifts in order to be able to better serve others. So how do you be faithful and use those gifts? Let me tell you a story about one of my heroes. Um, I have a picture on the wall of my office of a guy named Charles Spurgeon. If you know Charles Spurgeon, he was, uh, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the mid to late 19th century in London, was a, the pastor for 38 years of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He preached over 3,600 times. And in his day, they didn't have the internet and stuff, of course. And so they would print the sermons and they would sell them in like these pamphlets. And his sermons sold over 25,000 copies a week in that day. That is astounding. Right? It is amazing the kind of influence that he had. There's apparently, there's a couple of stories about him that one of these pamphlets, apparently, um, that uh, one of the older pamphlets, I guess it was sort of out of date, a woman bought a pound of butter and it was wrapped in a page from one of these sermons. And she pulled it off the butter and read it and converted and gave her life to Jesus. Um, <laughs> Like with the butter-stained sheet. There's another story of Spurgeon who apparently just had this booming voice. Uh, and he was to preach in this large auditorium the next day. And so he went in the day early when it was empty to test the acoustics of the room. And he went in and he stood and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And somebody who was cleaning the church in the back of the building gave their life to Jesus that day um, because he simply preached that one, that one line. He, uh, he started a seminary that trained over 900 pastors. He helped plant over 200 churches. He opposed slavery. He started orphanages. He served the poor. The dude was a rock star. All while suffering with gout and depression his whole life. But it's not Spurgeon that I want to talk to you about this morning. It's about another guy who lived around the same time as him named Deacon John Eglin. Ever heard of him? Probably not. Deacon John was a deacon in the primitive Methodist church. And on January 6th in 1850, a freak snowstorm hit England. And it snowed everybody in. They couldn't get out. And it was a Sunday morning. And Deacon John was on, the, was on the, uh, the roster to serve that Sunday in his church. 
And he was like, no one's coming to church today. Um, why do I, but you can't send out a text to say, hey, we're canceling the services, right? So he said, I'm on, the, I'm on the list. I need to go. So he pulled on his boots. He trudged through the snow, walked up the hill, went in, got the, the church going, turned on the heater, the, you know, those sort of things, got things moving. Uh, and, uh, and 13 of their people came that day. But not the priest. He was snowed in. He couldn't make it. Or he was just like, I'm not going. I don't know. But, uh, but there were, so there were 13 people and Deacon John. And John had never preached a sermon before in his life, ever. And he was like, here we are. Uh, we need a service. Uh, I guess I'm the guy. And he was thinking about canceling it and sending everybody home when the back door opened and a 15-year-old boy walked in and sat down. And he went, Dang, right now we've got a visitor, like we've got to do the service now, right? And, uh, and so, so apparently he preached, uh, he preached on Isaiah chapter 55, which was the text for the day. And it says this, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So he took this text and he preached on it and he, he apparently fumbled with his words and didn't make a whole lot of sense, had about three points that should have probably been one point and he was all over the place um, with it and, uh, and, uh, and, and it lasted three minutes and at the end of his three minutes, maybe out of exasperation, maybe because he ran out of things to say, uh, maybe it was the Holy Spirit or some mix of all of those things, he pointed at this boy that had come into the back of the church, in the middle of the church service, like this, from the pulpit, and he said, you, son, you look terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's like me saying, David Lynch, you look awful this morning, right? And you're like, Dan, come on, man. There's other people everywhere, right? So he pointed to this 15-year-old kid, and he said, you look terrible. And he said, young man, look to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved. He said, look, 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 and you will be saved. And the boy whose, young, whose name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon <laughs> later said, I did look. And then there the cloud on my heart lifted and the darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. Charles Spurgeon was converted to Christianity that day by Deacon John, who pulled on his boots, preached a three-minute horrible sermon, and insulted him in the middle of church. <laughs> he was simply faithful. He just showed up. Deacon John, who knows where he's buried, converted Charles Spurgeon, who would reach so many people for Christ. Who was a greater servant? They were the same. They were both faithful, and the Lord brought fruit. So where's the Lord calling you to simply be faithful? Where's he calling you to just show up, to just invite, to just talk with people about Jesus, to just belong to him and be public about it? Where is he calling you to simply be faithful in saying yes to him? And I leave us with this final point. There's one last place where we are faithfulness. We're faithful in, in, uh, in our belief. We're faithful in our mission, our doing with the Lord. And we're faithful to, to worship. Our God is a God who is faithful and is calling us to be faithful to him and we celebrate him and we honor him and we take joy that he loves us so deeply and we respond to him with faithful love in return because we are going to act faithful. We are going to do faithful things if we love the thing to whom we are committed to be faithful.
And so that's what we do here on Sundays. This place matters. What we do here matters. What we do at this baptismal font matters. What we do at this table matters. What we do when our music team is singing and we are, when we are raising songs to God's very ears that, that, that echo around the throne room of heaven itself. What we do when we are praying here has enormous cosmic significance. And so let's be faithful in our worship. Let's worship well. Let's worship with his adoration in mind and not even our own preferences, but to say this belongs to him and to his glory. And even as we are faithful to him and we show his name to be great, it can be a witness to those who don't know how great his name is. And so let us be faithful in our worship in our adoration, in our praise, in our love for God. So friends, the Holy Spirit is working in you if you are a Christian to be faithful. So let us be faithful in our doctrine, our mission, our worship as we serve such a faithful and beautiful God. Pray with me. Lord, help us to be faithful. It's, it's hard. Uh, it's, there are many things that tempt us in our, in our beliefs, in our, uh, in our, uh, to, to believe things that are untrue, that, uh, that, that want to deceive us, that, that other things can fill us and, uh, and heal us and save us. Lord, turn us away from those things. Help us to see the truth in you. Help us to remain faithful and steadfast and persevere, to not get beaten down by the world, but to be overjoyed by the truth of your gospel, overwhelmed by the emptiness of your tomb because of the victory that you have won. Lord, let us be faithful to your scripture, to you, to your mission. Let us be a faithful church as we serve you our faithful God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.